Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 11, 12, and 13 this morning. Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 11, 12, and 13. Let me encourage you to, uh, if you don't have a bulletin, to grab one, and it'll help you follow along. I'd encourage you to maybe jot down some highlights or... uh, if you're like a couple people in this room, they jot down like every word I say. Um, <laughs> they probably have more notes than I have uh, by the time they're done. And I have 3,100 words. So, <sighs> 3,100, that's, that's about normal. Usually about 29 to 3,100. It used to be around 36 to 4,000. Uh, we've tried to bring dial that back just a little bit. So, With all that to say, I I have no introduction, so we should just get right into this and get going. Uh, If you've not been here for Ephesians, um, they're all of Ephesians. We're just compiling and compiling and compiling. Um, So I encourage you that if some of this is lost on you, to go back and reread through Ephesians and study Ephesians. Maybe listen to 27 sermons or so uh, that are there uh, for your enjoyment and pleasure and joy. With that said, Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to read verse 1 all the way through 13 and allow verses 1 through 10 to be my introduction. Here we go. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, the grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Father, as we're going to study this morning, Father, we have access to you. This great transcendent God, who is perfectly holy and blameless and righteous, infinitely wisdom in all of His ways. Father, we have access to You. Us mere creatures. And so, Father, I pray as we think about these words today, 
that our hearts would be just captivated by your glory, which will be our glory, which is our glory. Father, we give you praise. It's in your son's name. Amen. Verse 11 through 13. Let's reread those verses for this morning. (coughs) He says, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. All right, so let's talk about this for just a few seconds here. We are accustomed in our culture and in our day, and so has man been from all time, accustomed to making plans and then changing them. We make plans all the time. We make plans, they get changed. We make plans that we intend to keep, they get changed. All of life has a bit of uncertainty due to this reality. That you and I are incapable, are not capable of making plans and keeping every single one of them with a certainty. We make plans and either we can't keep them or we don't want to keep them and so we cease keeping them. We break promises all the time. What does this do in life? This creates lots of tension. Think about the relationships that you have. Someone has said they promised to do something, they can't keep it. What kind of tension does that bring in the relationship? So I just want you to think for just a moment about this idea of making plans. Plans change. How does that impact life? It makes a big impact, right? But here's the thing I want you to see is that God's plan has never changed. Be encouraged. You were never plan B. God's plan has never changed. Be encouraged because you were never plan B. Let's flesh this out a little bit. Verse 11. He says, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. The question is for us to ask first is, What is the this? What is he referring to as the this? <clears throat> this equals God's plan to display his manifold wisdom through the church. Right, so what did, he just read, what did we just read in verse 10? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities of the heavens. This, this was God's plan. This displaying God's great wisdom by taking these people and putting His wisdom on display with these people, through these people. That this was his plan. This church was his plan. And when you think God's wisdom on display through the church, I want you to think of this phrase. I want you to think of this word, really. I want you to think of kingdom. I want you to think of the kingdom. God's kingdom. If you trace the idea of kingdom all throughout the scriptures, it's, it's there all over the place from the very beginning with Adam and Eve all the way to Christ and will be present when Christ returns, this idea of kingdom. Now, for those not familiar with the idea of kingdom in the Scriptures, here's what you need to know. You need to know these three very simple things. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Let me say that again. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. You see that theme all throughout the Scriptures, starting with Adam and Eve. They were in God's place. They were living underneath, or they were living as God's people, and they were living underneath God's great rule and blessing. 
until they ate of the tree, right? And then that kingdom was torn apart, right? But this is the church. You see, the church is not just a people saved from something, but a people saved to something, right? So typically, I know some of the churches I grew up in, and this, this whole idea of the gospel and being saved was just getting saved from hell. Well, that's half of it. The other half of it is we're saved to something. We're saved to something great. Namely, I'm wanting to argue, is the, the kingdom. We're saved to God's kingdom. We're saved to be God's people in God's place under God's rule. So we were not just rescued from hell, but we were actually saved to heaven. We were saved to be God's people. We were saved to live where God is. And we were saved to live under God's rule and blessing. So, this manifold wisdom of God is certainly, at the very least, the fact that He rescued us from sin and death, but it also includes the fact that He made us one new person, which is, again, a little bit earlier, in, particularly in chapter 2, that He has created these new people. These new people would be His people. And so the man, this manifold wisdom of God on display is also, not just that they are now God's people, but they now live under God's rule and blessing. And this is what we kind of talked about last week. And I felt like this was a, a helpful framing to talk about what we talked about last week. That part of that, if the church is God's kingdom, God's people, God's place under God's rule, part of that includes God's wisdom being displayed in the living out as God's people under God's rule and God's blessing. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? To sit on our butts and be called religious people? No, for good works like that were created, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're going to walk in these good works. That's all we're saying last week. This idea of identity and rhythms, who we are, how we live, right? Who we are in Christ, how we live, okay? That's all we're saying. That because of who I am in Christ, I'm going to walk in these works that God has created beforehand for me to walk in. Rhythms. What do we mean by rhythms? We eat. We sleep. We do all these things every single day. Well, who we are in Christ should inform everything we do. That's what it means to live under God's rule and God's subsequent blessing. We are His people. God's manifold wisdom is displayed as God's people live in the way God's people are meant to live. So we talked about identities, right? That we are missionaries, worshipers, learners, servants. We're a family. These are our five core identities that we talk about as a church. And we live these out in everyday rhythms. So if I'm eating, how do I think about eating as a missionary? If I'm a missionary in Christ, how should I eat my meals? Well, it probably means that eating should be more than just a refueling act. Right? It's more than just going to the gas station and putting more gas in so that I can go. But eating is something God has given to us that's meant to be used for His glory. I'm not saying it's sin to pull up to a fast food joint and grab a burger. What I'm saying is that if you don't ever use eating in being a missionary, then yeah, you're probably sinning. Like, there's a, my, who I am in Christ should impact everything that I do. Let me put that in simple terms. Use eating as a means to lead people to Jesus. If you're a missionary, 
Use eating as a means to lead people to Christ, to show them hope, to show them the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, God's created you with the necessity to eat because he wants to remind you multiple times a day that you need him as your provider. So use it. Or the fact that we're learners. I do a lot of counseling and teaching that all fits underneath this idea of that we are learners over meals all the time. Always, like, rarely do I have a meal and just shoot the breeze, okay? Uh, I do talk about football every once in a while, you know, that's kind of fun, but like, usually I'm having serious, meaningful, eternally focused conversations Um, because I'm a learner. As part of being a learner, I also want to teach. I want to help other people be learners. So that's, that's all we're saying, is that God's manifold wisdom is in part displayed as God's people live as God's people underneath His rule and enjoying His subsequent blessing. All right, so all that to say, what a glorious plan, right? I mean, what a marvelous display of wisdom that we, who live in a world full of chaos, Right? Just check the news. A world full of chaos. We get to live as God's people in God's place under His rule and blessing even now. And it is meant to be a display of God's wisdom. So how glorious is that? When we think, when I look at the news and see this stuff going on and Yes, my heart aches, and I go, oh my gosh, like this is terrible. At the same time, I'm a part of a different kingdom. I'm a part of a kingdom that cannot be touched. Yes, sure, my body may get destroyed someday, but I'm a part of a kingdom that cannot be touched, where I enjoy being the display of God's wisdom, where he took this person who is just as capable of all that evil there that's happening. Just as capable. He's taken someone who could do just as evil of acts and taken them, changed his heart, and made him into a display of his wisdom. What a plan. I mean, think about what Paul has been saying about us so far in Ephesians. Look back at chapter 2. He talks about how we were beginning. He says, look, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. What's he saying? Who, who are the people who are dead in their trespasses and sins? They're the people who do terrorist attacks. They're the people who, who kill people. But you were dead in your trespasses and sins, just like everyone else. You were following evil. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. He's talking about the evilness. You were this. When we think in terms of what's going on in our world right this very second, at least what's been publicized, think, I was following that. And that's what Paul's been describing. He's been saying that about us. But the wisdom of God has been displayed in changing all of that in His people. People who were dead but now are alive in Christ. People who have been now raised up and seated in heaven with Christ. Talking spiritually. People who now walk in gospel rhythm every day. Try to. And those who are the recipients of God's great blessings. 
So God has changed all that, and this is how he displays his great wisdom. So this plan to display his wisdom in this precise way, I want to encourage you with this. That it has always been God's plan. This has always been God's plan. Many people, when they read their Bibles, right? Well, the Old Testament was God's plan, kind of like plan A, and we get to the New Testament and the church and all that stuff's kind of God's plan B. Look at verse 11. He says, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. This was according to God's eternal purpose. This plan to take these dead people, make them alive, and make them display his great wisdom has been God's plan for all of eternity. Let me think about this with you for a second. We live in a world where it always feels as though we are someone's plan B or someone's means to an end, right? You ever feel like someone's plan B? You ever, you ever get invited to, to go do something and find out that there was one or two people before that they asked that couldn't do it? Like, I mean, come on, I mean, how do you feel, right? Like, <laughs> uh, well, you know, well, I guess I didn't make plan A, but I'll be your plan B or C or D, Right? I mean, how's that? I mean, just genuine. How does that, that feel? It doesn't feel fun. Some of you do that. You're like, well, I can't get this person to go. So, or you, you, anyways, I'm just giving you a hard time. But the world, though, right? The world is always using someone to get something. If we're not careful, we do the same thing. But Paul here at his core is trying to bolster in God's people encouragement that this plan of God's, that this way things have played out, has always been God's plan. I mean, think about how the Gentiles might have felt, right? So the God came, he's been working with the Jews, they've been God's people, and now all of a sudden the Jews reject Jesus, and now all of a sudden... It appears, hey, now us Gentiles get to be a part of this picture. Now what's Paul say? Look, yes, you get to be a part, but this has been God's plan for all of eternity. This you're not plan B. This has always been. See, that's the thing, guys. God doesn't have a plan B. He never has a plan B. He only has a plan A, and it always happens exactly as he planned. He has a plan A. Plan B, that concept doesn't even exist with God. He always has a plan A. His things work. He ensures that they do. So he was saying, you're not God's plan B. You're not some means to an end. So let me talk to you for just a second. If you're not a Jew and you're a child of God, you're a follower of Jesus Christ. We'll flesh that out, what that means in a little bit. But for those of you who know, you believe you're a follower of God, I, I, I want to speak to you for a moment. Within that category of people, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, for those of you who are well aware of your sin and depravity, right? Let me speak to you for just a second. So you see someone who, who day in, day out, reflects on their sin and understands deeply that I am in need of God's mercy. I want to encourage you with this. God's plan has been 
to display His wisdom through you as a part of His church for all of eternity. Okay? Even with your warts and your wrinkles and your deep, deep sin. Have you ever, let me ask you this. Have you ever felt like you're a second-rate child of God? You know, I, I spend a lot of time, obviously, observing people. Observe people all the time. People in our church, people outside of our church. And when I look at men and women of faith that I admire and look up to and I read things about like Jonathan Edwards and, and you know, past Puritan preachers, things like that, and I read these guys and I admire and look, I often feel less than a child of God. Because I look at them and go, oh my gosh, like where's my faith at? Where's my faith at? Maybe that happens to you. But then the question is this, how do we then respond to that? I'm still talking to you who are well aware of your sin and depravity and live in that each and every day. How do you respond to this most often? I, I tend to respond to this self-righteously, trying to rescue myself one moment by moment. I can pull myself up out of this, trying to prove that I'm not a second-class citizen. But I want to remind you, child of God, that you and all of your warts were part of God's plan from eternity past. That it's through that even that God displays His great wisdom. That's the marvelous thing here. It wasn't, oh, I'm going to find these people that don't look as evil as the rest of the world, and then I'm going to kind of collect them together and put my stamp of approval on what they do. It's not that. It's, you would be, you could potentially be a part of ISIS right now, or something alike, and God rescues you. God rescues you. Your warts, your wrinkles, God takes that then and uses that in His marvelous grace and power to display His great wisdom. Why? Because He overcomes all of that evilness. So I want to encourage you that you're a part of God's eternal purpose, part of God's eternal plan. When you think about sin and depravity each day, like I have to remind myself that I'm a part of God's eternal purpose. The chapter 2 said that I was dead. And what should I do with that? I need to own it, certainly. Own it, own my sin, and move on. The, because the plan didn't stop there. The plan doesn't even stop at rescuing me from hell. Instead, the eternal plan of God finds its goal in displaying God's manifold wisdom to all the deadness for all eternity for God's glory. So God is going to take, God has taken my deadness, made me alive, and I need to, I need to own that, I need to know that, I still struggle with that sin, but the plan doesn't just stop in saving me from hell. It doesn't just stop in saving you from hell. You child who recognizes your wickedness day in and day out. The plan doesn't stop at just saving you from hell. It stops at saving you to the point where you are a display of God's manifold wisdom. So this display, this 
display of God's wisdom in this precise way has always been God's plan. There are many more implications for that. We must move on. The, second, the third thing I want you to see is that this great display was brought to reality in Christ Jesus. It was realized, he said, in verse 11. This was, according to this manifold wisdom of God on display, was according to the eternal plan of God, the eternal purpose of God, that has realized, that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's talk about this for a second. This phrase, realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, is not describing the making of the eternal purpose. So if you're not careful, you can read this as going, okay, when God made the eternal purpose to do this display of His wisdom, when He made this, so in, the, in eternity past, when God decided, I'm going to, this is going to be my plan, He didn't think of that plan or realize that plan in Jesus in the sense that He came up with it in Jesus. What he's actually describing when he says is realized in Christ Jesus is the bringing to reality the display of God's wisdom. So God's display of his wisdom is brought into existence through the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Shake your head yes. Shake your head no. Okay. All right. So you're with me. If, if you said no and I didn't see it, I'm sorry. You can ask me afterwards. The display of God's wisdom, put it this way, is accomplished through the rescuing work of Jesus. He comes, saves his people. It's in his work on this earth that he brings to existence God's display of his manifold wisdom that happened in verse 10. So here's what happens, right? So follow me, track with me here. Jesus Christ the ultimate minister of the gospel. So I'm trying to reach back a couple weeks now. In verse 7, he says, Of this gospel I was made a minister, Paul says. But Jesus Christ, though, we know is the ultimate minister of the gospel. What does he do? He comes to the earth. He is a servant, a missionary, a learner, a family member, a worshiper of the only true God. He lives this out perfectly in everything that he does. When Jesus communicates, he is a servant, he is a missionary. He's a learner, helping others learn, even learning himself. When he eats, he's a missionary, he's a learner. All in all, everywhere Jesus goes and everything he does, he lives out perfectly his identity as Jesus Christ, right? In doing so, he lives perfectly the righteousness that we could never live. He lives in such a way that we could never live on our own. And then what Paul is saying here is then as this good news follow, as this good news is preached that Jesus Christ has come, he died for your sins, he lived the life you could not live. As that is preached, as that gospel is made known, that good news is preached. People believe and what's birthed these new people. This new man that Paul talks about in chapter 2. Next these people are united together, we see in chapter 2, to be a holy temple for the Lord, to be a, a housing place for God's glory, to display God's manifold wisdom as we just talked about. So the church displays the manifold wisdom of God 
Ultimately, because Jesus Christ came and did what we could not do. He lived representing and honoring God perfectly. And then now in Christ, we get to do the same thing. So what he is saying is that this plan to display his manifold wisdom was brought into existence, was made a reality through none other than Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, so there, there's lots of applications for that. That's what you think at its core. You didn't bring this into existence. Okay? Your church membership didn't bring this into existence. Your baptism didn't bring this plan into existence. Jesus brought this into existence. Jesus brought and lived as the perfect person and displayed God's manifold wisdom. So, I mean, things like legalism and things like earning your favor with God and things like that just doesn't make any sense if this is true. It doesn't work if this is true. Now Paul says something very interesting, I think. Look at verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. In this display of God's wisdom, we now have access to God. We now have access to God. I want to linger here for a bit. If that does not stir your affections, then maybe you've never had access to God. I'm just going to say it. Probably to you, religion is some sort of, this is some kind of religion. I, I know that didn't make a ton of sense, but Christianity is just some sort of religious activity that you do. We have access to God. couple misperceptions that I see. I've seen just observations on my part of people who read this verse. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. Here's a couple of those misconceptions. One is, and this tends to be more in an emotionally driven, charismatic type context. Awesome, now I can have what I want because we have boldness with God. I can approach God with boldness and confidence and express to Him what I want and need. And, and it's used as kind of a, a bolstering to go lay claim to what it is that you want. I have categorized that in my judgment as a misperception. On the other hand, the <laughs> stiff Baptist, as I grew up in, oh great, now we can have salvation. Go believe the gospel and be saved. And we just kind of simplify what's going on in this verse of, okay, great, we have Jesus, we can go be saved. 
and I think this misses the point. Let's look at the context, okay? Just look at the context. A little bit of context is never going to hurt anybody, right? Verse 11 of chapter 2. He says this, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand. Just, if you don't know what that means, that's okay. Verse 12, remember, okay for now that is. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time, listen, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is who you were. This is who you were prior to God's eternal plan coming to exist in Christ Jesus. You were this, without hope, without God, and you were in the world, dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of the world. That was you. Does that kind of person have access to an infinitely holy, blameless, wise, righteous God? Where everything in his midst is living and alive and loving him. You don't have access to that. Because you were this. Let me see what Paul's saying. You who were this now have this. Oh my gosh. You have access to God. But there's a question, what do we have access to? We'll flesh this out a little bit more today. But we have access to the very presence of God. Access to the very presence of God. Based on what we've studied in Ephesians so far, what is there in the very presence of God? There is, very briefly, life in Christ. There is life in Christ. There is hope in the very presence of God. There is peace in the very presence of God. As this passage is not some magical you know, phrase to, so we can boldly make God do something for us. This is just, this is not just a, oh well, we should believe in Jesus and we should do this with boldness. No, what he's saying is that you who were without hope in the world, without God, dead in our sins, slaves to unrighteousness, captives to the evil powers of the world, now you find hope, life, peace, freedom unto righteousness, and followers of a holy king, you now find all of this and have access to all of this in the presence of the one to whom all of that radiates from. You have access to this. You have access to his very presence. But what is our typical MO? What is our typical MO when things aren't going the right way? Whether it's because of sin in our lives, or it's because of just struggle, you know, maybe it's someone else's sin that's inflicting pain in your life, or whatever the case is. What is our typical MO when it comes to access to God, knowing that, but we're going through the situation? What, what's our typical MO? It's to run and hide. It's to run and hide. It's to go figure it out ourselves. It's to rattle off a a few verses because that'll fix everything. Or it's to go on our own effort some way to fix it. Think about the garden. 
Adam and Eve experience brokenness for the first time, right? What's their inclination? What do they do? No one told them to go do this, right? There was no law that said, well, the rest of the world acts like this when brokenness happens. No. What happens? On their own, they run away. They go hide. They go in shame. They recognize they go hide. And we need to understand that in shame and brokenness, our tendency is to hide. It's to run. And oftentimes we run to self-righteousness. See, it was bold to eat of the fruit. But then this brought shame and fear. Instead of living peacefully and joyfully and boldly in the presence of God, because of our sin, we run and hide. Don't we? We run and hide. Do you run and hide? I run and hide. I think I can fix this, and then I can go back to the presence of God. If you're not sure if you're a follower of Christ, I want to ask you this question. If you're just thinking through this in my, you know, and just not maybe not sure, and I just want to talk gently with you for a few moments. Do you, do you ever approach God? Like, do you try to approach God? If so, on what basis? What gives you the right to approach God? I mean, because our, our world says that, well, you need something, just talk to God or talk to that higher power or so on and so forth. But my, my question is, what gives you the right to talk to God? With what confidence do you have when you approach God? I mean, do you appeal to the things that you've done, maybe? Maybe the number of times you've prayed this past week or how long it's been since your last speeding ticket? Or maybe I provide for my family. Are these the things you appeal to when you say, I should have access to God because I've done these things? But what Paul's saying here is that the, the confidence to engage God cannot be based upon anything you can do, ultimately because you can do nothing. I can do nothing to earn access to God. How does this access to God take place then? How is he saying this takes place? I mean, just look at the passage. What's going on? He's saying that this plan of these people who now have access to God, what did we just say in the last point? He said that this has been realized in Christ Jesus, that this takes place, this access to God takes place only through and by Christ Jesus. Matter of fact, look particularly at verse 12. What's it say? In whom? Who's the in whom? Who's that referring to? It's referring to Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom, in Him, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in what? In Him, going back to Jesus Christ. So Paul says at the beginning of the phrase and at the end of the phrase there that those who have boldness and access to God are those who are in Christ. So then the question is this. You should be asking me, how does one be in Christ? And I just want to be super serious with you for just a moment. One is in Christ when they recognize and see that they can have no access to God apart from Jesus Christ. That my sin, that what we do is evil, brings condemnation on ourselves. And that that sin has to be paid for. There's a price that has to be paid for for that sin. In order for me to have access to God. 
So Jesus comes. He lives perfectly and then dies on the cross for your sin and my sin. For those whom God would save. He rescues them. How does that? So when we come to the end and recognize I cannot get to God on my own and ask Him to forgive me for trying. And believe that Jesus paid the price for those sins. Faith in Him. (laughs) I have access to God. I have access to God. I mean, let me encourage you. If you're not sure if you're a follower of Christ, if you're sure you're not, you're not sure you're going to heaven, if you're not sure that you're a believer in these kind of let me encourage you to start right there. Let me also encourage you, if you just want someone to talk to through that, I certainly come talk to me. Would love to. Or anyone else in our church. Would love to. Now, for those of you who are sure that you're a Christian, as sure as can be. Let me ask you this. Do you live every day like you have access to God? Do you live every moment as though you have access to God? Think about that for a second. Like when you sin, do you live as though you have access to God? Do you take responsibility for your sin and run to the Father for forgiveness, peace, and hope? Because someone who doesn't live as though they have access to God, when they sin, they take their sin and run and hide. Usually what they try to do is justify it by their own means, or they try to make it all perfect by, you know, outdoing, you know, tipping the scale by, well, if I just pray enough more times, or if I... Let me ask you this, do you run to God for mercy? Someone who has access to God runs to God for mercy. What, is, what does repentance look like? What does it look like to ask God to forgive you? It is begging for mercy, at least in part. Do you run, thinking again in terms of sin and having access to God, do you run to Him for strength to overcome? Do you run to God for strength to overcome? Or do you run to your self-help mechanisms to overcome sin in your own life? Listen, listen, you have access to God, the very one who thought in his mind, I will create this person in this way, to look this way, with this many hairs on their head, to be this high, this short, this wide, this fat, this, you know, all those dimensions, to have these wrinkles, these warts, that's going to go through this sin, it's going to go through this struggle, it's going to have these ailments, that's going to have these people around them, that's going to experience this kind of environment. That's the person that you have access to. Why would you go anywhere else? Why? Because you think you have a better plan. What's that? It's just self-righteous. It's just legalism. I can figure this out myself. Like I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to anyone in here. Or what about when life is just hard? It's not necessarily sin. Do you run to the Father as though you have access to God? Now listen, it's at this point, I want to be really careful as we think about the application of this. 
Some of you are very good at running to God as though you have access, and yet you have nothing to do with God when you don't need anything. Someone who understands they have access to God is going to enjoy access to God as much as they can. It's to taste and see that he is good. What do you want? To, you want to taste more. But some of you are very good at running to God as though we have access, yet we have nothing to do with him when we don't need anything. Maybe you rarely study your Bible. Maybe you put little effort in the church life and community and Jesus' bride. And I mean, there's other indicators, I think, of this. But then when time gets a little tough or you want something, now all of a sudden, okay, yes, I have access to God. But I want you to understand who this passage is talking about before we talk about boldness and access with confidence. Because this is crucial. There's a lot of Christians, oh, I've got boldness and access, or think they're Christians, I've got boldness and access with God. Well, this idea of the people who have boldness and access to God are described in a very particular way in this passage, beginning with this. So let's look at how is God describing, through Paul, the people who have boldness and access to God. Verse 1 of chapter 1. Do this. If you have your Bibles, go back there. I would encourage you to do that. Let's just look real quickly. First of all, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are what? Faithful in Christ Jesus. To those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, you have boldness and access with confidence to God. Verse 4. Those who have been chosen to be holy and blameless. Those have access to God. Verse 5. Those whom He predestined for adoption as sons. So these sons of God. Of course, not gender specific there is not the point. But these sons of God. You have people who have obtained an inheritance. Verse 11. Right, I'm going to move through these a little quicker now. Those who hope in Christ. Verse 12. Those who hope in Christ. Those people who hope in Christ and not their own abilities, their own means, their own righteousness. Those people have access in, with boldness to God. Or have boldness and access with confidence to God. Those who have faith in the Lord. Those who have faith in the Lord. Verse 15 of chapter 1. Also look at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord and your what? Love toward all the saints. Those are the people that have access with boldness and confidence to God. Those who have love for all the saints. Not those who neglect the saints. Verse 18, those who know the hope. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. Verse, chapter 2, verse 5. He says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. Someone who has boldness 
and access to God has been made alive in Christ. They are now living in Christ. Right? Yes, that was a past tense thing he's referring to, but it implies an ongoing living in Christ. Those who walk, so let me, let me, let me clue you in to something here. This doesn't mean having a couple neat thoughts about Jesus each day. Okay? That's not what it means to live in Christ. Next one, those who walk in the good works that God has prepared. What we've been talking about, those who walk in gospel rhythm. Chapter, 10, or chapter 2, verse 10. For we are His workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared before Him that we should walk in them. The whole beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, talks about those who understand that their identity now impacts everything that they do, that they were dead, now they're made alive, and they now have these works that God's created for them to live in. Guys, these are the people that are now in Christ. Now, here's what I want to be very, very careful. What I'm not saying, what Paul's not saying, is that those who have access with confidence and boldness to God are those who do all of these things as a means to gain access to God. Right? That would just be another form of self-righteousness. What Paul is saying is that those in Christ are these things and live these things, they are the ones who have access to God. Does that make sense? I'm not saying that we do these things to get to God. I'm saying they're a result of what God has done ultimately to bring us to Him. Okay. But where this is helpful, where this is helpful for us, let it spur you on to see these things, this hope in Christ, this, this uh, faith in the Lord, this love towards the family of God, knowing where our hope is, recognizing we are chosen. Let us look to these things to help us gauge. Like, are we a follower of Christ? Like, should I even have access to God? But then also, what does it look like for me to live as someone who has access to God? It's this way. With these things in mind. So these are the people that, he, that are now in Christ. So Paul says, these people, they look this way, they're in Christ. And these are the people that are now, again, the display of the manifold wisdom of God. Now look back at verse 12 of chapter 3, where we're at. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So it's in Christ. Follow my log- the logic here. It's in Christ that we have access with boldness. It's in Christ that we have boldness to walk into God's presence. All of these things that we just talked about, that we just listed out, are evidence for those who are in Christ. And those who are in Christ are the only ones who have boldness and confident access to the presence of God. Where there is peace, life, hope, and living. You see, we have boldness and access with confidence to the very presence of God. To the very presence of God. We're going to have to pick up the pace here so we can get done today, but we have boldness and access 
with confidence to the very presence of Paul has gone out of his way to make this declaration of assurance as strong as possible for his readers. He's, he is trying to build this case for you have access with boldness to God. You see, we who were once aliens to the promise of God now have not just access, but we can walk to the Father with confidence and boldness. This is not confidence and boldness to go to God. Paul's, listen, Paul's intent here is not to say, you have confidence and boldness to just go ask God for whatever we want. No, he's saying we have confidence to access the presence of God where peace, joy, and life finds its origin. That's what he's been describing. He's been describing what is there with this thing with God. What's in God's presence? There's this inheritance. There's, there's life. There's peace. There's living. We can boldly know and access the one life giver of all. And here's the other beautiful thing for us to be reminded of is this. Our Gentile access cannot be hindered by the hostile powers and authorities. The sons at work, the, the sons of disobedience now at work in this world, that they cannot hinder our access. Our access is not based upon flesh. They can take our flesh, but they cannot take away our access to God. Very briefly, boldness. What does he mean by boldness? Because I want to make sure we understand this. God is not your genie in a bottle. What he means, I think Paul means here by boldness, is a joyful confidence to enter the presence of God based on Christ's saving work. I can boldly, joyfully go into his presence. It's not a, all right, God, here's what I need you to do for me today. It's a, all right, God, thank you for what you did for me already in Jesus Christ. Now let me submit my plans to you, Father. Confidence. What's this confidence? We have assurance and certainty with which we may enter God's presence. So Christian, let me ask you again, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, when you sin, why run away and hide? Do you not know that you have access to the very one who before time began planned to display his wisdom through your redemption? He knew that sin. Like he knew that was going to happen. He, already, he knew it. Adam and Eve, why did you go run and hide? God knew it. Well, they recognized their shame, and that, that's a good thing. Redemption had not been provided yet. You start to see that come to be foreshadowed there in the beginning of Genesis. But now we, particularly post-Jesus Christ and His sacrifice, why would we run and hide? It's just crazy. Have you ever thought about that when He planned this, He knew the very sin that you would struggle with this day, or yesterday, or the day before. And that you are not some second-class citizen, some plan B, but a fellow heir with Jesus Christ. How about when life hits you broadside, not necessarily sin-related, do you not know, little child, that you have access to the very one who granted you access, knowing what struggles would attack your heart this day? That it, that it was even a part of his plan
You know, it's neat, and we'll get to this in January, if I apologize. But Paul models this confident access to God immediately in the prayer that follows. So I'd encourage you. What is this prayer of someone who understands his position before God, yet has, and, and in that understands his boldness, access, and confidence? Go read 14 to the end of chapter 3. Okay? But I want to go back to the last sentence in this passage. Verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So Paul now draws out the implications of the great truths that he has set before them. This is what you need to understand. Okay? Paul's been delivering all of these great truths. And now he's talking about what has happened to him because of his belief and adherence to these great truths. Okay? Can't miss that. Paul draws out these implications. Paul has written about the eternal purposes of God. He has written about the place of his Gentile readers within the divine plan. This is God's infinite, or God's eternal plan, and now it includes more than just the Jews. And Paul has written about God's plan for Paul in all of this. And what's he do? He says, I don't want you to lose heart. I don't want you to lose heart. He says, do not lose heart over the results. Or what I want you to see is, do not lose heart over the results of being a display of the manifold wisdom of God. Do not lose heart over the results of being a display of the manifold wisdom of God. That's what happens to Paul. I don't know about you, but when I, when I read that, I just go, What's going on with Paul? As Paul lived out the gospel, what happened? It brought him suffering. It brought him suffering. Now here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to confuse suffering for the gospel with suffering for your stupidity. Okay? I'll let that settle. Paul is suffering. Why is Seeking the glory of God while he is living out the gospel. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. If you want to go read this in more fully this week, I'd encourage you to. But Paul says this, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Don't what's he meant by the elect? He means the people that God has chosen to save. That they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He's saying everything I do. It's for their sake. And he is suffering here. He's enduring these things for the sake of what? The good news of the gospel going forward. That people would be saved. That he would be a display of the manifold wisdom of God. I want you to notice one simple thing. And we're going to land this plane here. Whatever the results are for living out the gospel in everyday lives... Trust God with the results. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Paul is saying, I am living out the gospel, and it has brought me, and Paul means physical suffering. 
It has brought me physical suffering. I am living out the gospel. It's brought me physical suffering. But he says this. Don't lose heart. I mean, think about the ways in your personal life that you can live out the gospel with intentionality, right? So living out your identity and your everyday rhythm, rhythms, okay? That would bring you suffering. Maybe not, physically, maybe not physical suffering, but that would bring you suffering. Let me give you one. Let me give you an example in my own life. Sometimes it's easy to lose heart when my kids are a little grumpy because a house gathering goes a little late. Right? Sometimes it's easy to lose heart. Now what most of us would say, to, to kind of get over that, we'd say, well, Paul suffered in chains and tormented physically. I can surely deal with some grumpy kids. And yeah, that's probably true. But listen, I want to encourage you this way. Live out the gospel with intentionality. And don't lose heart at the results. Okay? There's going to be things, like, look, on Tuesday nights we choose to delay the bedtime of our kids for the good of the church. And yep, they get a little crazy. Some of you have seen my kids at like 10 o'clock. They get a little crazy. They're crazier after you leave. That's why I make them take out the trash. Okay? In their bare, foot and, bare feet and underwear. I'm just kidding. Sometimes I do that willingly. <clears throat> even when it's cold. But we don't lose heart. That's what Paul is saying. We don't lose heart. Why? Because... He's saying, I don't lose heart because this is for your glory, for the glory. We're going to talk about that in a second. Why is Paul suffering? He's living out the gospel. But what is he doing as he's living out the gospel? Of course, he is proclaiming the good news of Jesus. But they're putting him in chains. But then he says that interesting phrase there at the very end. He says what? Which is your glory? What does he mean? Why do we endure all things for the gospel? He isn't talking about the glory of the people. He isn't talking about like the people's glory being greatly displayed. He is talking about God's glory being displayed that these people that he is suffering on behalf of will get to participate in. God's glory, I'm suffering on your behalf so you get to participate in that. So you get to be a part of that. This is your glory. Not in your glory as in you you, the glory comes from you, but as it's God's glory, and you get to be a part of it. I'm suffering for you for that. Don't lose heart. It's for your glory. It's for the glory that you will participate. It's for this. So Christian, I, it's interesting. I think you can see at this point that there's this there's this permeating idea of Christian unity and suffering on behalf of other saints and for the proclamation of the gospel that's going on through here. We're going to really hit this hard in chapter 4. But as a result of all this truth that Paul has set before the Ephesians and us today and in the beginning of Ephesians, Paul undergoes suffering for them so that they might participate in God's glory. Uh, did you hear what I just said? 
Paul was suffering on behalf of his brothers and sisters in Christ. So I want to ask you this question. When was the last time you suffered for the sake of a brother or a sister in Christ? Like when was the last time you lived with intentionality the gospel out, particularly for the benefit of a brother or sister in Christ? Are are we leading our kids to do this? Are we leading our kids to sacrifice for the sake of a brother or sister in Christ? Particularly if our kids profess Jesus. Lead them in this way. Both by giving them opportunity and pushing them, and by us modeling it for them. You know, and I think about our suffering... It's probably going to look, a less, look less like a world beating our flesh and more like a self-imposed denial of the flesh. That's going to feel a lot like suffering. I mean, most of us are not going to be put in chains tomorrow because of Jesus. I mean, there may come a day. So let me give this some feet. Just some examples. Crucify your flesh and give up some TV so that you can read your Bible and we can all grow together in the Word. That's probably, for some of us, going to feel like suffering. Okay? Now it's pathetic. I, 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 I get the smirks. I'm with you. It's easier to veg and be stupid for a few moments. All right, crucify your pride in your parenting so that we can honor God together in parenting. That's going to feel a bit like suffering. For what? The sake of our brothers and sisters. Give up, our self, give up your, my self-justification and accept exhortation so that we can grow in holiness. How about this? Stop saying you're crazy busy and just own the fact that you don't steward your time well. Slow down. Slow down. Okay? Slow down. I'm not saying... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, anyways, I'm not going to caveat that. Let it set where it goes. How about we give up looking out for ourselves and give ourselves to our brothers and sisters? Again, this is kind of the undertone of what Paul's talking about here. This unity in the body is where he's going in chapter 4. So some of this is looking ahead into chapter 4. But what you hear Paul saying, though, is that I am suffering for you. Don't lose heart. So, if something I said in there offended you, then go pray, okay? Let me land the plane with this. It is through the church that God's manifold wisdom is displayed, right? Let me kind of bring this in right here. It's through the church that God's manifold wisdom is displayed. It is through the people collectively that God has united as his people who display his wisdom, right? So we've been talking about last week and this week. It is the rescuing of a people who now love and cherish the Father and seek to know him in prayerful study of his word. So let me say this to you. If you're a child of God, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have access to the Father. And I hope you realize that today more than you ever have. That you have access to the Father. 
that you can intimately know and love the Father and know that you are loved by the Father. You have access to the Father. In His presence there is life, there is peace, there is hope. And as I said before, oh child of God, why would you look anywhere else? Why would you turn your eyes this way? Put on blinders, for goodness sakes. Just put on blinders and go. Access to God. Access to God. I have access to God. And the second thing is this in closing. Child of God, don't lose heart over living out the gospel. You can be faithful to what God is commanding you to do through His Scriptures and trust Him with the results. Now I want to encourage you to not just think explicitly what the Scriptures command, but what they also imply for our lives as well. But you can be faithful to what God is commanding you to do and trust Him with the results. Paul's results of doing what God commanded him to do was physical suffering, and yet he says this phrase, don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged. Why shouldn't we lose heart? Because the results we face, because we live in light of the gospel, are all for the purpose of the glory that we and our brothers and sisters will participate in. Amen? Living in the presence of Almighty God for all of eternity. We get to participate in that. And, and I hope that when, I mean, there's many different motivations for going through suffering and, and so on and so forth, but let, let this be at the top, that we, that God is glorified and we get to participate in that glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we get to participate in your glory. Father, we have access to you. Father, thank you. Father, the, thank you that we don't have to maneuver life and arrange pawns and pieces on the chessboard in such a way to try and orchestrate our own access to you, Father. But you, knowing that we could never orchestrate our lives in such a way that would grant us access to you, have provided a way. As Paul says in verse 12, that it's in Him. Father, that is, it is in Christ alone that we have access to you, Father. Now, Father, we don't have to run and shame and hide when we sin, but we have access to you, Father. You granted us access before the beginning of time, knowing even the sins that we would struggle with, that you paid for those with your Son's blood and have granted us access. So when we struggle, we can run to you, Father. And also, Father, that through Jesus Christ, that when we are struggling with things that aren't sinful, that are just, that are just life and painful because of brokenness in this world. And we have access to the one who controls it all. So, Father, let us run with boldness and confidence, Father. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know if they have access with boldness and confidence, Father, let them either sort that out with the, with the truth taught them today, 
Lord, Father, let them seek out someone to help them work through this today. Father, we give you praise. Father, for it's in Christ alone. Amen.